For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Todd Pickett. Uh, I should probably go by another name to keep from confusing people. It can't be too many Todds. In the... It's good to see you all here. You look about one hour more rested. I have sat in a few church parking lots alone wondering where everyone is, so I suspect that uh, it's better than being one hour late. So uh, I live here in Orange County, Costa Mesa, in fact, and I, I hang out with a lot of Christians. So I work at a Christian university, and I have a lot of Christian friends from high school that I still hang out with, even these days. And uh, so I'm with a lot of people who know the story, who understand the big story, that, that know my language, they know what I'm talking about when we talk. But occasionally I do find myself in groups of people who are um, completely different in this way. They don't understand the Christian language. They don't know the Christian story. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll just come out with it because it's, it's part of my life that you should probably know about, but occasionally I find myself among celebrities. I don't say that to uh, impress anyone, but just to say that sometimes I find myself, like, you know, among um, people who are, think quite differently. Uh, so I'd be at a party and I'll be talking to people who, who are um, part of kind of the uh, Hollywood syncretism. They're kind of combining many different religions in their approach. Um, they're uh, often people who, have never, who don't actually know a Christian, <laughs> who have never met one. I mean, sometimes I think that the, uh, the um, Aborigines in Australia or Papua New Guinea have a better chance of meeting a missionary than someone who works in the movie industry. Um, and I find myself with these folks, and, and I remember one particular party I was at, and it was a Thanksgiving party, and uh, there were some people there, and, and one of them, uh, and if, I won't say her name because you'd know her if, if, if I said it, but one of them said, um, in, in a really kind way, she said, it must be weird for you to be a Christian here at these parties. And uh, it was actually a very sweet thing for her to say. I mean, it did make me feel a little bit like an, you know, a National Geographic you know, native, you know, like, <laughs> wow, exotic. You know, I felt exotic for the first time. You know. How weird for you to be a Christian here. And she basically said kind of, well, tell me about what that's like. And, and what she was, of course, referring to is that you know, people don't, <laughs> we just don't know Christians, so kind of tell me about yourself. And I remember being so surprised by that, and, and kind of unprepared. First of all, I wasn't used to these folks asking or caring about this. Now, she herself was a serious studier of horoscopes and the zodiac, and uh, had kind of felt like she'd seen every religion come and go. Um, and uh, I remember thinking, what? how do I even start with someone like this? I mean, she's kind of opened the door here in a very nice and interested way. Where do I grab this? Well, in our passage today, Paul finds himself in a similar situation. In Acts 26, he is before a king, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa basically says to him, Paul, tell me about yourself. That's what it says in, in the translation. You don't have this part of it. It's Acts 26.1. But he says, tell me about yourself. And there's King Agrippa, who's the king of Palestine. There's the Roman proconsul, Festus. And there's all these Roman officials, all these military and state celebrities. And King Agrippa says, go ahead, tell me about yourself. Now, a little background here 
about how Paul got himself in this situation. He was actually in Jerusalem two years before, and uh, some people from Ephesus, from Asia, kind of noticed him because they'd seen him in Ephesus because there had been some riots there with Paul. And they recognized him, and they said, wait a second, this is the guy who's been profaning our faith. And so they began to start a riot in Jerusalem. And uh, the police were called, and the police came in, and they kind of sorted things out, but they kind of flogged Paul. And then Paul said, well, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that. And they said, whoops, sorry about that. Um, And so they took a kind of uh, 200-person military escort and escorted him down to Caesarea, where the Roman proconsul at that time, Felix, was. And they said, well, we're going to put you in protective custody. And so there Paul has sat for two years under house arrest under Governor Felix. In fact, he'd been there so long that another governor was coming into office, somebody named Festus. Now, Festus was new, and Festus wanted to kind of be, get in good with the Jews because Festus is a Roman. He's not a Jew himself. But here he has to kind of rule over this territory of Jews, and so he doesn't want to upset them. If word gets back to Rome that Festus isn't really keeping the peace in Jerusalem, then, you know, Festus's job is at stake. So he wants to keep the peace with the Jews, and the Jews are saying, you know, we want to reopen this thing about Paul because they had wanted to kill Paul. And Festus kind of wanting to placate them said, okay, we'll reopen Paul's case. And the Jews said, why don't you send him to Jerusalem for the trial because they're in Caesarea. That's where Festus lives. Well, everyone knows that this was really an ambush, and the text says it, that there was going to be an ambush of Paul on the way to Jerusalem, and they were going to kill him. That's why they wanted to move the trial to Jerusalem. Paul knows this. And Festus says, look, we can either, Paul, we can either go to Jerusalem for a trial, or you can appeal to the emperor in Rome. I love it the way Paul's never a victim in these things. He's always thinking, this isn't, I'm not trapped here. God had said that I was to preach the gospel in Rome, and I think this is how it's going to happen. I get to go to Rome. And so he says, I'll go to Rome. Let's go to Rome. I appeal to the emperor for my innocence. And so those wheels start turning. And in the next chapter, we're going to see Paul going to Rome. But in the meantime, Festus, the Roman proconsul, has a problem. See, he's got to write a brief to send with Paul to Rome. He's got to explain to the people in Rome why he's sending this guy to them for a trial. Because in his mind, Paul hasn't done anything wrong, and that was Felix's problem too. Felix couldn't really find any Roman law that Paul had broken. There's some religious thing happening. He's vaguely aware there's some religious problem, religious law that he's breaking, but that doesn't concern him. It doesn't really concern the emperor. And so he's got to figure out, what do I say when I ship this guy off to Rome? Well, fortunately for Festus, King Agrippa comes in town. Now, King Agrippa is a Jew. He's kind of a secular Jew, kind of a Roman Jew. But he is the king of Palestine that they've kind of allowed to stay as king there. By the way, he's the grandson of Herod the Great and the Herods who gave, who gave such, the Christians such a bloody hard time. And he, but he comes in town, and Felix is overjoyed because he thinks, this guy knows probably what the story is. He knows the nuances of all this religious conflict. I'll ask him to come in and listen to Paul, help me write a brief so that, so that I can send something you know, intelligent off to Rome with this guy. And so what we have here is this gathering of King Agrippa, Festus, the Roman proconsul, and all these high court officials And that's where King Agrippa says, it's a hearing. It's not a trial, it's a hearing. Paul, tell me your story. I'm interested. Interested as a Jew, interested as a Roman official of a kind. And so Paul gets to tell his story. And you know what's interesting about this? 
Paul does tell a story. He tells a story. In fact, the words that, that, uh, that Agrippa uses in Greek, he says, tell us your apologeto. Tell us your apology. Do apologetics. <laughs> tell us about yourself. And so Paul tells his conversion story. We might say he gives his testimony. But the interesting thing about his testimony is he actually ends up telling the big story at the same time. See, Paul has so understood the big story and fit his own story into that that he tells both stories at once. He tells the little story of Paul and the big story of God. And I think this is critical because what Paul is saying is, you know, this isn't just about the story of one person. This is about the story of God saving the world. And he's overjoyed that Agrippa is there because Agrippa knows this story. Festus wouldn't know the story. Festus has some, this is just a little, you know, another religion in the Roman Empire. But Agrippa, who's a, who's a Jew, would know the story. And Paul says, you know, Agrippa, I'm going to show you how my story makes sense into the big story that you know, why all of this makes sense. And I want to kind of show us kind of four aspects of the big story as Paul tells his little story within it. And the first part is going to be that Paul is going to assume or imply with Agrippa that this story all begins with God's loving initiative. See, every time Paul says God's people, that Agrippa, you and I are part of God's people, you know the story, what he's saying is you know that this began with God's loving initiative. He came to Abraham and said, I'm going to be my God, your God, and you're going to be my people, and your descendants will go to the end of the earth, and I will have favor on you. And with Moses, that blessing is repeated. And so Paul is, in, is the first part of Paul's story is, look, I am just following the story that began so long ago with God's people that God looked on us and said, I find favor with you. Of course, for us as believers, we know the story goes even further back with God's loving initiative, that God created humankind out of an act of love. So Paul's first kind of assumption is that both of us understand that this big story started with God's loving initiative, that you and I have a third person. You notice how friendships actually form when two people have a third thing? you have a child, it's two people who have a third thing they love and that will love them. Paul's saying, you and I, we're connected. We have a God who loves us. That's part of the story. That's what connects us to this big story is there's a third person who loves both of us. Facebook understands this, right? When they send you invitations to connect with people, they say, you two are friends with a third person. Invite them to be your, invite this person to be your friend. So the first part of the story that Paul wants to tell is, we're part of a larger story in which there is a third person, God, who loves us. The second thing he says, in another translation, he says, it's because I believed and took this story seriously, Paul says, that I committed myself heart and soul to what God promised my ancestors. The identical hope, mind you, that the 12 tribes had lived for day and night. The key word there is hope. He says, you know, I'm not making this up. This is the story of the good Jew, and I'm the good Jew because I have taken seriously this hope that we were given so long ago. Every time he says hope in Acts, he's referring to the hope of the resurrection. He says, I took seriously God's promise to resurrect his people. Now, this would be, for a Jew, this would be something they believed. Now, there were some called the Sadducees who actually didn't believe in resurrect resurrection, but the majority of Jews believed that God would someday resurrect his people. That is why when you go to uh, John 11, and Jesus comes up to Martha and Mary, and Lazarus has died, and Jesus says, you know, he will rise again. What does Martha say? Oh, I know he'll rise again, Jesus, in the resurrection at the last day. See, Martha's a good Jew. She knows, oh yeah, there's a hope there. There's a resurrection at the last day. I know all about that, Jesus. It's a bummer, though, that he's not alive now. The piece that was missing 
was that this resurrection would take place first to the Messiah. That's what was unexpected in the story. That's what the Jews didn't expect. They knew there'd be a resurrection at the last day. What they didn't expect is that the Messiah would be the first, would be the guarantee of the promise, the guarantee of resurrection and eternal life. And so Paul tells his story. He says, you know, I was on this road to Damascus, and I believed like the rest of you did, that there was just going to be this general resurrection at the last day. I was on this road, and Jesus confronted me, and he, he was the resurrected Jesus, and it all started falling into place. We all knew the what. We all knew there'd be resurrection. We didn't know the how. We didn't know that he was going to bring Jesus first as the Messiah, and that the Messiah would be resurrected. We didn't know that piece, that this was Jesus. You know, it's kind of like those things, those... Um, you ever see those uh, pictures they hold up, and you're supposed to see the spaceship in the picture, but there's all these other things and you don't see it? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, this kind of thing where it looks like just a bunch of stars, and then you're supposed to stare at it long enough until suddenly you see, oh my gosh, there it is. Sometimes somebody has to point it out to you, though. Here's the wing, here's the other wing, here's the cockpit, here's the tail. And suddenly it just comes into view, and this is what happened for Paul. Paul says, oh my gosh. We all knew the what, but we didn't know the how. And Agrippa, it's the same old what, but God is revealing the how. And then another word Paul will use in Acts, and he uses here, he says, I took seriously the promise. Well, what's the promise? Well, for a Jew like Agrippa, it would be the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. So it's not just the hope of resurrection, but the promise of the Spirit. And it would have echoed in Agrippa's mind, Joel 2.28, that his Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Well, this is another big part of the story. So we've got the part of the story of God's loving initiative, we got the part of the story of the resurrection. And now we got the part of the big story about the hope of the Spirit. And so when Paul says, I took seriously, I'm, I'm, this is the same old story. I'm taking seriously that there would be this promise of the Spirit poured out in Joel. And he says, I've experienced this. I've experienced it. We didn't know how the Spirit was going to come before. We just knew it was going to come. That he would take the law and put it in our hearts. But now it's come through Jesus who made possible this coming of the Spirit. Agrippa, it's the same old story. But we just didn't know how it would happen. And now that we know how, it all makes sense. Well, you know, that's how most good stories are, right? We often know the what, but we don't know the how. So like you're watching TV, and you're watching a crime show, and you see at the beginning the person commit the crime. Some crime shows do that. They show you the crime at the beginning. You know who committed it. But what's, what's going to be the mystery? How are they going to prove it? <laughs> we know that Jake the Avatar is going to help the blue Navi people <laughs> escape the horrible soldiers. We know that from the beginning of that movie. That's just how these movies go. Why do we stay in the theater if we know the ending? We want to know how it happens. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. This is the same old story, but I'm, I got to tell you, this is how God has done it. The fourth part of the story is, and we also knew that this was supposed to go to the whole world, Paul says. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nation. He says, why are people so amazed, first of all, that I'm talking about resurrection? That's part of the old story. And why are they so upset that this is going to the Gentiles? Which is, of course, why the Jews want to kill him. Because from the beginning, Isaiah 53, it was supposed to go to the Gentiles. It was supposed to, we were supposed to be a light to the nations. This should be no surprise. It was through God's people that God is going to save the whole world. This should be no surprise, Agrippa. These parts of the story, God's loving initiative, it's the big story. God's resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, and the restoration of all humanity. This is the story we believe in. Agrippa, i got to tell you, Jesus fits. And my experience with Jesus is just a part of the big story. And so he says in verses 19 and 20, he says, this is lovely, he says, what could I do, King Agrippa? I couldn't just walk away from a vision like that. And when he says a vision, it just all fell into place. 
I became a believer on the spot. I started changing this, preaching this life change, this radical turn to God and everything, everything it meant in everyday life. Well, now this is an interesting turn. Because the story I'm telling is not just a story of my conversion. You know, we often think of a testimony when someone tells their testimony. It's a story of how they came to Christ. But Paul says, no, this story, what I love about the story Paul says is I get to talk about how this is continuing to save people. Not that just I've been saved, but I've been saved. I'm continuing to teach how, what this means in everyday life. And I think we've, been, we've kind of been influenced by a, a little too much revivalism in American culture in which we've confused the word salvation. Because the story of salvation is not just how we came to Christ, but of our being saved after Christ, being saved from ourselves. Theologians will say, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. <laughs> Paul says, I get to talk about how God is continuing to save us. This story is not just a story of the past. This is a story of the present. And we know that Paul has a huge passion for evangelism, but Paul also had a huge vision for the maturity of the church. Supposedly, while he was in jail here, he wrote two letters. Colossians and Philippians. I mean, he had time on his hand, two years. He wrote Colossians and Philippians, and now listen to some of the verses from those letters. Colossians 1.28. My desire is to present everyone mature in Christ. Now, we think of Paul as an evangelist, but you know what he is? He wants to see the ongoing salvation of those who have been saved. Or Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Take what you have received and continue to live your lives in him. Paul wants to see the ongoing salvation or Philippians 1.9, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for his God who's at work in you. Paul is passionate about the maturing and completion of believers. And so Paul tells a story to Agrippa. There's Agrippa, there's the proconsul Felix, there's all these things, all these people there. What is Agrippa's response? If you keep this up much longer, you'll make a Christian out of me. <laughs> now we're not sure if Agrippa's being kind of witty here, but you've got to wonder what's happening to Agrippa. I mean, he knows the story, and Paul has just laid it out, and it has to be at least intriguing to him. Now, you and I aren't often in places where we're talking to non-believers who do know the whole story already, where there might be an internal resonance. But, you know, sometimes we will be. Sometimes we will be. I think some of our audience sometimes are what I might call the lost Christians, people who were raised Christianly, and they do kind of know the story. They remember it from Sunday school or from the past. But somehow they, the pluralism of culture and the fact that no one around them is talking about it anymore, they just kind of lost the story. In, in a scientific and materialistic age, it, it seems a little improbable to them. And so they just kind of drifted. I remember being on a, uh, I, I got to do an archaeological dig when I was younger in, near Corinth, in fact, in Greece. And I remember there was a girl there named Athena, Greek-American. And as we talked, as we had time over the weeks, as we talked and I started talking about my faith with her, for her it was just like living water. <laughs> Because she had kind of drifted. And as I talked to her about the resurrection, and that this was a real event that happened, I mean, that's almost all she needed to know. She, just, she was very close. Even though she drifted, she was very close. All she needed to know is someone to say, you know what, this really happened. You know, Paul says this right here with two Agrippa. He says, Agrippa knows this. This hasn't been played out in a corner. <laughs> Agrippa knows this is happening. He knows there's a movement of Christians. He knows there's a way. He knows this is actually happening. He knows about this Jesus person. Well, there are many Christians out there who just need to know that this is possible. And Paul says here, what is so crazy about the fact that if a lo the loving God would want to resurrect his people? That is not a crazy notion. And the fact that historically, it seems to have happened. So for some of our friends that we meet, that's all they'll need to know. They'll need to know that part of the big story that you take seriously, which is this really happened. So for some of our lost Christian friends, that will be the important part of the story. 
I think there's another audience we have which are kind of the disillusioned Christians. And these are often the Christians who actually have been wounded. In Kinnaman's study called Unchristian about why, uh, why there are the cultural attitudes toward Christians there, he talks about many people who actually were once part of churches. But because of some wounding they received there, or some failure of people to meet their own standards, some kind of perceived hypocrisy, these people walked away from the faith. What part of the story do they need to hear? Well, you know, they need to hear the cross again. They need to hear the story of the cross because it isn't about us being able to live this perfectly. But it is about us returning again and again in our spiritual failure through the cross to say, Lord, you still love me. I failed again. And you know what that will produce in us? It'll produce honesty. I can say I failed again and again because of the cross. That part of the big story. And it'll produce humility. And so some of our disillusioned Christian friends are going to hear, need to hear that part of the cross, and then you're going to need to hear how our little story has been a part of that story, how we, in our spiritual failure, have had to return again and again to the cross to admit that we hurt people, to confess our sin. They're going to need to see that honesty and humility as we, in our little story, live that big part of the story out, the cross, and return again and again to it. So our disillusioned Christian friends are going to need to see that in our little story and in the big story. But what about this third group, this woman I met at the party at the beginning? <laughs> she is not... The lost or confused Christian, she is not the disillusioned Christian. She's pretty full-on the postmodern person. She's a little bit like Festus. In our reading, what does Festus do? You know, Paul's talking to Agrippa, and Festus finally can't handle it any longer, and this is what he says. <laughs> Festus says, Paul, you're crazy. You've read too many books. you spent too much time staring off into space. Get a grip on yourself. Get back in the real world. Festus is this Roman, probably a materialist, sees all this as superstition, He's actually kind of like, not too far from what we might call the postmodern person. Postmodernism is a philosophy, but postmodernity is really a mood. And the mood of postmodernity are things like pragmatism. You do what works. Everybody's got their thing, and they do what works, and that's cool. There's a disbelief in meta-narratives. There isn't one narrative that covers everything. There's not really one big story, would be the postmodern mood. There's a disbelief that there's really one big story. Everything is local, nothing's universal, everything's cultural, nothing's transcultural. That's Festus. He's like, yeah, yeah, Paul, this is crazy. Well, how do we talk to people like that? They're not going to really go in for the historical account because the part of the mood of postmodernity is an incredulity, a disbelief of any kind of you know, reason even in reasoning these things out. They're not going to go, of course, for the big scriptural story because that's never been their tradition. That's just one of the local, one of the kind of culture-centric religions. So how do I talk to this woman at this party? Well, there is one story I think that still appeals, that still connects people. And I would call it the relational story. I was on a plane with a, with a woman sitting next to her. She turned out to be a therapist. And she was kind of like Festus, a pragmatist. You do what works, kind of a disbelief in all religions, considering them all at some level superstitious. But you know what she was interested as we begin to talk? She was interested in my journey, which was essentially what Paul says, the big story of journey of darkness to light. She agreed with me to what? The what was maturity, health, what we would call shalom, living with the grain of the universe, but what she would just call kind of health, the movement from darkness to light. And so I began to share with her my story. But I always talk about the larger story. I talked about, you know, that in the beginning, God, I realized, loved me and has always loved me, has always initiated this love for me. And the big lie that I believed in my life was that he didn't love me, 
It was Satan's lie. Remember, Satan comes into the garden and says, you know, he told you not to eat of this tree because, uh, because he loved you. But Satan says, no, he told you not to eat of the tree because he's your rival. Because he would know if you ate of it, you'd become like him, knowing good and evil. That's what Satan said. And so I said, from the beginning, we've been taught, I've been taught to not trust anyone. That even God was really my rival. That he put that tree in the garden not to love me, but to keep me from becoming his rival. And so what I've discovered in my sin, as I've tried to find some other way of, of claiming my security apart from God, I told her, what I've discovered is just tremendous shame and guilt in my life. I know I'm broken. I know I'm guilty of something. I, I feel tremendous shame, and I want to hide and cover myself. And I do that through so many ways, through trying to find success here and, and to cover myself there. And I find this whole story that I'm living is one of trying to cover myself and my brokenness. And she got that. She goes, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen all the ways people cover and hide. And I say, you know what's great about the cross is I can come clean now because I've been totally accepted. There's no condemnation. So what I get to do in my life is I get to be completely honest now about my failures and my brokenness. And for her, wow, honesty is a huge thing. And I said I can completely open because there's no condemnation in, our, in my tradition. There's no condemnation. There is sadness. I'm very sad. But there's no condemnation. And I say, what's even great now is that the Spirit is kind of my therapist. You know? The Spirit is my spiritual director. Spirit is leading me into restoration. The Spirit's been poured out of my heart and is now teaching me as I open my brokenness and my sickness. That was in our pastor's day. Jesus says, I've come to heal the sick. She understood that language, Jesus' language. She understood that we're sick, and the Spirit is here helping us into maturity and health. And I said, but what this all is about, the big story is all about, is I needed another person to love me completely and fully through God the Father and His initiative, through Christ and His resurrection, through the Spirit and His ongoing love. And she understood that. I could tell this was a light was going on for her. I don't know what happened to her. But as I told my little story in the big story, that was something she was still interested in. How do you move from darkness to light? I think this age is still interested in that. What is the story about moving from darkness to light? So what do we do? How do we tell that story? Just live it. Some of us feel like, you know, I don't have a story. I don't have a dramatic, it would be great if I had a story like Paul's. Wow, that'd be fantastic. I don't have a story. I think Paul would say, you know what Paul would say is, just keep living out your salvation. Work out your salvation. What parts of your life is God calling you right now to mature in? What are the sins and the activities, the addictions? What are the failures that he's saying, just bring these to me, let's work on them. What is God's prayer for you right now as you live out the story? And as you, like Paul, take seriously this call, this larger story and how your story fits into it, you'll have a story. Somebody will say at some point, tell me about yourself. And you can say, well, right now, you know what? This is how God's leading me from darkness to light. Let me tell you about it. And as you tell that story, you're going to have to talk about God's initial love. <laughs> you're going to have to talk about the resurrection because this is how you can come clean about things. You're going to have to talk about the Spirit because the Spirit will be showing you things. And you could eventually be able to say, you know, this is for all people, Gentiles included. And so as we have our kind of little quiet time as we end, I just want you to open to the fact that Paul's passion for you and God's passion for you is to continue to say, Lord, how are you saving me? What is next for me? And Lord, continue to work that story in me so that when somebody says, tell us about yourself, you can say, well, this is how God is saving me. And this is how it's connected to the big story.